All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. We've got a fun guest for you guys now. Dylan Brody is a humorist and author, and he has now come up with the Corona Dialogues. We're gonna find out what that is in a second. Dylan, how you doing, brother? Uh, you know, there has never been a better time to be in the Dylan Brody business. I am frankly having the best pandemic ever. <laughs> well, I hear you on that. I never <laughs> saw it coming, man. I Here's a weird thing. And there, I don't know that there's any other show I would feel comfortable talking about this on in this way. For years, I've been saying that we're living in a dark age. That you know the powers that be are suppressing science to maintain their hold on power and so on, right? Um, and that if we all really tried to live up to our innovative potential, we could move forward into a renaissance. Mm -hmm. And it was like a, it was like a talking point for conversation at cocktail parties. Entirely forgot that a plague comes in between, and then it hit, and I was like, "Oh, this is when it happens! All the creativity flows, all the create, the, the innovation happens. Uh, humanity turns inward and goes dormant, and we are going to evolve toward greatness, my man." I'm not sure that's really how it's playing out, Dylan, uh, but I like your note of optimism. I uh, I. I'm not saying that a lot of people aren't gonna die because of vast stupidity in the meantime. But over the long term, man, this is this could be the best in the way that Twitter was the best thing that ever happened to stand up comedy writing. This might be the best thing that's ever happened to you know philosophy and uh, and human exploration and advancement. Uh. I, I do believe uh, that that is an apt analogy. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going to show a clip of uh, of Corona dialogues in a second here. So, um, what are we looking at here? It, it, for what's Corona dialogues overall, and what is the clip we're about to watch? Okay, Corona dialogues is a web series that I had intended to be a small two piece play. I thought it was gonna be a short two act play that I could do on Zoom because we had just gone into lockdown. So we did this thing and my co-star turned out to be a genius and wrote a third episode in my writing style. And suddenly we had a series going. It was about the the sort of middle class angst of being stuck inside for grown ups suddenly told to go to their rooms at the beginning of the pandemic lockdown. And then the Black Lives Matter protests started. And we thought, well, we gotta stop doing it. Well, you know, what middle class angst no longer has a place in this dialogue. And I realized that we need all voices in the dialogue. And it's so what you're about to see is from the second season when we found our take on what to do with the characters in the Black Lives Matter era, still locked down, still all delivered through the 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 windows of the uh, uh, what's it called video networking, the video conferencing screen. So it all reads like a, a two panel comic strip every episode. My allyship, which I mean, let's be serious, that's not a word, but I just feel like allyhood could be construed as racist. So I'm not going to float it as a term, but anyway, it all sucks. And I just keep. We're all doing our best. But I mean, like yesterday, I was on Facebook, I saw this amazing article. Chad Sanders wrote it for, I think, the New York Times, right? And it was called, I don't need love texts from my white friends. White friends, yeah, it was brutal, like a compliment from mom. Right, but the thing is, the day before that, I was trying to email one of my old college besties who happens to be a woman of color. Deborah. And 
Yeah. Love Deborah. What? You knew it was Deborah. What? Because I only had that one black friend in college, which, oh God, that makes us racist. Well, it, makes, it makes me observant. It, it could potentially make you racist. I watched uh, more of it and, uh, and there is you know, some, uh, obviously the reason it's funny is because there's some element of truth in it, right? In, in, in not having one black friend makes you racist, but uh, at some point you guys joke around and say, wait, are we allowed to laugh at that? And right, that's, that's, she says that in response to a line that she wrote for me. And it's one of my favorite lines so far in the series. Am I the first person to notice that the head of the Congressional Black Caucus is a Karen? Right. <laughs> oh, what a great observation. Who, by the way, is my Congresswoman. And uh, I love her. <laughs> uh, and that's the thing, I mean, we both, Kate and I, feel we are at the far left, most tolerant, most accepting end of the spectrum. And at the same time, we are so aware that we are self-involved and insulated. And that as we realize what's going on with the the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the public lynching of George Lloyd, that what makes it so hard right now is we have to realize that we have been complicit in the subjugation and oppression of a huge class of people based on race. Even though we don't want to be complicit and didn't intend to be complicit, simply through inaction and allowing it to be part of the fabric of our experience. And now we have to grapple with that and we have to be able to have a sense of humor about it. Because it turns out we're all idiots. Yeah. So. Have you ever encountered a situation where people don't have a sense of humor about it? And I don't mean the right wing. That's well, I was a Jew at prep school. I was a Jew at prep school. Are you kidding me? I have known some humorless people in my time, young man. Right. <laughs> no, no, the, the right wing not having any humor is the most obvious thing in the world. And, and, and they'll pretend to get offended at things they're not actually even offended at. And then they'll get mad at people who say that they're offended about things. Not noting the irony at all. So I've been through that a thousand times. Uh, but has anyone on the left wing uh, gotten offended at, at the stuff you guys are saying? You're obviously saying it like any person can tell with the best intent, and it's poking fun at all the right people. But sometimes got, people don't get I, it. I got a fantastic series of uh, angry texts a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it takes me, it always takes me like three exchanges before I remember that I'm allowed to just block a person. You don't have to have that conversation. But um, he started by uh, being angry at me for having talked about going to the protest. Um, and then went on to, to give me the uh, a lecture, a Twitter lecture on how I shouldn't be doing this show uh, because we hear enough from Jews. Uh, they run the entertainment. We we run the entertainment industry, and we have all the money. And also, we are all socialists, uh, which is the same kind of dichotomous. You know, we're money hoarders, and yet we want to share everything. Doesn't really work. <laughs> uh, in the same way that you can't say that the immigrants are both lazy and stealing all the jobs. It, you can't just come on, <laughs> be racist in one direction at a time. You can't. Um, so yeah, I've I have some people who who. 
I'm not for everyone, Jenk. I think it's clear, you know. <laughs> I, I I have a niche audience, and once the people who like uh, thoughtful humor find me, they go, "Oh, you, you exist!" But there aren't that many of them, so I have a fan base of twelve. Okay, so Dylan, uh, since I've got you here, when you have, yeah, this is a rare opportunity. So uh, when did you take over all of media? I <laughs> well, you know what happened was Howard Stern put out that book about how he'd sort of gotten soft, and I hadn't liked him that much when he was hard. So when he went soft, I said, "Hey, there's an opening here for me now." At least. At least the other people who know how it works are starting to think the way I do. Right, and and do you remember when you made your first billion? I, you know what? Listen, I I lost track. I was at about a three and a half million when I started building the Austinarium on the back of the uh, on the back of the townhouse. And honestly, I had to stop counting because ultimately, it's like reading reviews, man. It just it makes you sad no matter what it says. <laughs> no, but the, the amazing thing is, people really do believe it. I mean, I, look, I, famously so, I had David Duke on the show, and he absolutely positively believed that Jews run the media, the banks, uh, the bagel shops, you name oh, it, the Jews the, run. The, the tropes and the, um, the, the, the anti Semitism runs so deep. One of the things we do this season. Is she ties Black Lives Matter to the Me Too movement, and then in the final episode of the season, I come back to Jewish self-loathing and what my issues are with money, and we really are trying to bring in the 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 similarity and the beauty of humanity and the the painful humor of family. Dylan, you guys are great. What, what what's your co-star's name again? Kate Orsini. Uh, the episode that dropped today, we had guest star Bonnie Hunt. You can find that she's in episode seven and she's brilliant. Um, and Kate Orsini is my co-star and co-writer now because she's a genius and I want her to be a star. Yeah, I think she might be on the way there. Uh, she, she is fantastic. Uh, so where can people find it? Uh, find it at corona-dialogues.com, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S, the proper spelling. Yeah, that's the problem. Uh, you put a complicated word in the title, no one will be able to find it. Yeah, yeah, that's something for you to say after the conversation about your last name before I was willing to go on the air with you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Said the guy named Uyghur, but kind of Uyghur, but kind of Uyghur. Is your name pronounced in Klingon? <laughs> Actually, we, we gotta go, but the Klingon language is based on Mongolian and, and a little bit of Turkish. Oh, so yes, partly. This is a conversation I want to have sometime, but you have a show to do, so we can't. <laughs> All right, Dylan Brody. Thank you so much for having me. It's back. called the Corona Dialogues. You're awesome, brother. Thanks for coming on. All right, we're back on a conversation. Um, so unfortunately, we know that uh, Black folks in this country and Latinos too are getting coronavirus at much greater rates uh, than than white Americans. And they're dying at unfortunately even more disproportionately rates. Uh, we wanna try to find out why. And so we're brought on Kenya Evelyn. She's a breaking news reporter for Guardian US and she's covered this. Kenya, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, no problem. So uh, first, let's go over the numbers. Uh, how bad is it? Uh, how disproportionate are uh, blacks and Latinos 
uh, by coronavirus. Sure, essentially the New York Times had to sue the Center for Disease Control and Prevention essentially to even get these numbers released. But what the data is showing us is exactly what public health experts have been shouting from the rooftop since this pandemic began. That black and brown Americans are disproportionately more likely to contract the coronavirus as well as die of COVID-19, the respiratory disease that results from the coronavirus. And so where we're seeing that is that black Americans in particular make up a third of all COVID-19 cases and then a third of all deaths. And that is exacerbated among younger populations. We're talking about the second wave although some states are even seeing their initial wave. Well, that is being largely led by the increase in numbers among young people. But even among young people, we're seeing people of color, young people of color are disproportionately contracting and dying from the from COVID-19 compared to their white peers. And where we're seeing that is primarily with the relaxing of stay-at-home orders. Those that are disproportionately putting these communities at risk, being that they are the majority of frontline workers and are more likely to live in multi-generational households. So Kenya, I'll give some of the numbers that I saw in your piece and then let's talk through why. So blacks are getting it at 3.6 times the rate of whites in America and Latinos are getting it at 2.5 times the rate. And among 35 to 44 year olds, blacks and Latinos are dying at 10 times the rate. The mortality rate is stunning. So. Um, those, those are potentially two different phenomena. So let's talk about why they're getting it in the first place. So why do you think blacks and Latinos are getting it disproportionately? Yeah, well, the conversation is largely centered around race. And although that is correct, it's, I would say more so racism. We have racial inequities, existing inequities in our healthcare system that exacerbate pre-existing conditions that black and brown people are, are predisposed to, meaning diabetes, hypertension, issues like that, that make them more likely to have negative outcomes from COVID-19. But where we are seeing that they're more likely for exposure in the first place is that black Americans and Latino Americans are more likely to live in an area where where there is a void of a quality healthcare facility. They also are more likely to have their symptoms or even their, their pain disbelieved by medical professionals on account of racial bias. And then when you add on top of that, we have 75% of the meatpacking industry are people of color. We have 40% of all frontline workers, transportation workers. We have healthcare professionals. These are industries that are more likely to be have their frontline and essential workers be staffed by people of color. So when you already have vulnerable communities within your own household because you're more likely to live in a densely populated city, you're more likely to have a grandparent as well as a parent or aunties or cousins or whoever in your household, that makes you not only more at risk on account of what you do and the life you live, but then that puts your family at risk by you bringing back that, potentially bringing back that virus while you're asymptomatic into your household. Yeah, so unfortunately, is an excellent example of the vicious cycle of racism, because we talked about the meatpacking plants earlier today on the Young Turks, and and they were forced to go back to work, and then coronavirus cases exploded because they they weren't even provided masks, and they were right next to one another in an enclosed space for long periods of time. Uh, and, and that's a recipe for disaster. So now you have huge uh, coronavirus cases uh, in Iowa, Colorado, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Uh, and you could clearly trace it to the meatpacking plants. Um, and, and so what, uh, well, right wing racists, let's just be honest, uh, say 
uh, is, well, look at this, you know, um, blacks and Latinos are getting it more. Uh, it's because they're less careful. No, it's because they have to go work at a meatpacking plant. You just said 75% of the workers there are people of color. And then because of the of the historic racism, also in lower socioeconomic status, which means that more people have to live together, which then also spreads the virus, let alone the medical treatment that they're getting and the biases involved there. So when you look at it, it's right now, it seems like unfortunately, it's the perfect storm hitting blacks and Latinos as we speak. I mean, you've got that plus the George Floyd situation. And I'm not sure that the rest of the media quite has grasped how devastating it is for minority communities in America. What's your sense of that? Absolutely, essentially communities of color are going through three different pandemics simultaneously. And all of these are where they are disproportionately feeling the impact. We have a tanking economy, we have a established recession. We have a social uprising that is around, that is centering these very issues of race and social justice. And then we have a public health crisis. In fact, we have employees of the CDC begging and demanding that health professionals and the CDC declare racism as a public health crisis. Well, that's because you know communities of color, they are, you know, they're 40% of their households are more likely to make $40,000 a year or less. And so when you're hearing that a majority of households that make $40,000 a year or less had someone within their home lose a job since March, since the beginning of this pandemic, well, you know that that's, that's disproportionately, that's, that's impacting black families, that's impacting Latino families, that's impacting Asian American families. We're seeing that happen in cities across this country. And so what is also happening is that there's a sense of uh, racial bias impacting public behavior. When that virus or when this pandemic doesn't seem personal or in close proximity to you, it isn't personal to you. And therefore you tend to exhibit more reckless, a more restless behavior. And that's why, like you mentioned, we see primarily white ring, white, excuse me, right wing extremists and white supremacists storming state capitals demanding for the government to be reopened. Whereas when we see protests and demonstrations calling for racial justice, we're not, we're seeing protesters being blamed for the spread or any uptick in these cases as opposed to those who storm state capitals without masks. When much of the research is showing us it's parties not protests that are spreading, particularly among young people that are spreading the virus. Yeah, I forget which state it was, but they just explained, yeah, it was definitely the parties. Um, and so I'm not saying that it didn't spread in any protests. Of course, there's no way of knowing that, right? And I get it, folks were close to one another. But it, the health professionals can sometimes trace back where the problem started in the first place. And I'm sorry, I forget which state it was, but they just announced earlier today, yes, it was the parties. And then I thought this story might have been apocryphal, but in Texas, a guy actually went to a COVID party and apparently on his deathbed, his last words were, I thought it was a hoax. Um, so it's just, it's sad, it's tragic in, in a lot of ways. Kenya, it's so hard for anyone to have this answer. And I don't know that you or I have the answer, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, so what do we do in a situation like this where people gotta go back to work, unemployment checks are about to run out. Uh, and and there's after July desperation might start to kick in, uh, and and I don't know that they're going to get hired. It's you know the Republicans keep pretending as if there's all these jobs and people don't want them, right? No, there are no jobs. 
they they didn't leave voluntarily, they were fired. Um, and But at the same time, we're scared to death of coronavirus and its effects. Well, the question of what do we do? <laughs> I, I, I know it's almost like what can you do? But you know, you you have to even look at this at the lens of we are not in normal times. We are not under a normal administration. We are not under uh, a, a, a normal sense. Our sense of normality is simply just completely gone out the window. And and so you have to analyze, or you even have to ask, look at look at what we're even seeing in our media discussions. There's a lot of introspection that is happening about where we go from here. What can we learn from the current uh, current society, our current socioeconomic output? Our look at you know these glaring health disparities and in this pandemic that is ravaging this country right now. In a normal situation, you would imagine in such a time of of of, of crises for America, multiple crises for America, we would do some introspection and say, what can we learn from this? How is it that this is exposing our very vulnerabilities as a country? The fact that healthcare is to our employment, or that there isn't a, a universal income for to guarantee basic essentials and necessities as a human being in this country. Well, you would imagine, you would, you would, we would expect that most adults and most people of sound mind and intelligence would use this as an opportunity to show where our weaknesses are as a country and to provide those stops, stop gaps for to to essentially be a, a resource for the American people. But essentially. Um, we don't live in that society right now. No, no. But it sounds nice, though. I want to. I want to visit at some point. Um, you know, my mom has a phrase that says it's too much like right, and sometimes it sounds so good and it makes too much sense that you almost. Have to <laughs> Okay, uh, Kenya, we, we only have a minute left. So I'm just gonna ask you a, a random question here because I'm so curious about it. In another piece uh, on The Guardian, you uh, wrote about uh, uh, basically how black folks have to deal with their hair and, and, and critique of their hair and how etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I just wanna ask about one thing though. What were the Tignan laws that you referred to? Sure, yeah. so in, well, in Louisiana，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因为，因